Good morning. Good to see everybody. How are we doing? Yeah. Amen. And really, uh, it feels because we're all in rows that this is kind of an event, but it isn't. This is just a gathering of family. Because this family is so gutsy when it comes to having a mission, the mission of Christ in the world, um, some of us have relationships, like a relationship with a pastor from Cuba who happens to be here today. And uh, how can we just let him sit here without welcoming Pastor Eduardo and having him come up here really quick? Come on up here, Eduardo. Awesome. Come on up here. I know, I'm kind of putting you on the spot. That's what we do here, you know. Um, (laughs) Tell us what God's doing in Cuba. Um, as you know, uh, we started the house uh, church movement in Cuba. It was in 1991. From one day to another, we had house churches all around the country. It was 1991. Today, there are house churches all over the country. In many cities, the people is hungry for the word of the Lord. They are just opening their homes for us to have a service in their house, pray for them, have communion together, share the Bible, which is a dream accomplished for us in such a close country. Amen. This sounds like uh, the book of Acts, doesn't it? Tell us, uh, how can we pray for you, Eduardo? You and the, and the church, our brothers and sisters in Cuba. Um... We need to pray for the leadership who can take over, lead the house churches, the, the sport ministries, coaches and teachers who can lead the uh, baseball teams. Yeah. Baseball's uh, a big deal over there, isn't see, it? See. Yes. <laughs> and I understand you have a relationship with the baseball team at Cornerstone, and there's some fun things that are going on there as well. Yes. It's exciting. It's our joy to have you here today. And you guys, let's stand and let's pray for for Eduardo. Spirit of the living God, would you just fall afresh on our brother. And God, we just thank you that um, it's an amazing thing. Here I'm standing up here with with someone I just met for the first time. and, And... We have this oneness in Jesus Christ, and we have that, Lord, with brothers and sisters all over the world, and so many of them, too, don't have the freedoms uh, and the comforts that we have in this country. Uh, But let us be on guard, Lord, in our country, because, Lord, these things hinder the gospel, and in places like Cuba, Lord, you use the discomfort and the difficulty and the hardship and the church having to be underground for great gospel expansion. And I pray your Holy Spirit upon Eduardo and the church and the church leaders and the house church movement that's taking place there, God. And we just pray that you would build your kingdom in power for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, buddy. That's best of you. Okay. You guys hungry or not? All right. Um, 
We're going to look at Acts chapter 6 and 7 today as kind of a culmination to the series that we've done on the priests. And uh, so you can turn there right now. But while you're turning there, let me just do just a little review because some of you um, have not been around this summer, which is totally fine with us. I mean, Shabbat Shalom, right? Um, But what's a priest? I'll take this all the way back to the beginning of, of the story. Adam and Eve, we learned, are the first priests. And they're priests that are placed in God's first temple, the garden, the Garden of Eden. And it's the priest's job to cultivate this garden. And remember, this garden was more than a temple. This garden is paradise. And what made this garden paradise is the simple fact that God lived there. This is where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, where they literally saw God's face, where they're plugged into the living God. So as priests, they are to guard this garden with their life. They're to cultivate it. They're to enjoy it. And from this place where they're plugged into God, they are to bring that garden to the world. As we like to say around here, God's people in God's place enjoying God and priesting God in his presence, his garden, into the four corners of the earth. But as we know the story, that garden was lost. Adam and Eve, as the priests, were kicked out. And uh, since Adam, you need to know this. We've lost the world or the environment for which we are made because we weren't made for this world. I think so many people are like left scratching their head like, why is my life so difficult? Why, why is there so much hurt? Why is there so much pain? Well, this isn't the world that God intended and not the kind of world that God made for us. God made us for a garden where we can know God and we can live in his shalom. And, and our hearts ache right now, whether you know it right now, is for the garden. And we long to find the door back into the garden. As C.S. Lewis puts it so well, he says, we have this sense within us that we are on the outside, that we've been kicked out. And this goes all the way back to Eden. We've been kicked out of the environment for which we've been made. And he says, the inconsolable secret of every soul is that the door in which we've been knocking all of our lives will finally open at last. And that door that we long to see open is the door back into the garden, back into God. And here's the gospel. The gospel is that God doesn't give up on the world, but he raises up a people through whom he's going to replant his garden. First, that garden is the tabernacle. Then it's the temple. And that's exactly how God's people saw the tabernacle and the temple. It was heaven to them. In fact, when they go to that part of Jerusalem where the temple was to this day, they say, they call it making Aliyah. Making Aliyah means to go up. We always go up to the temple because it's as if we're going up to heaven. Then God gives amongst this people a whole tribe the sole responsibility of guarding this garden. And he calls the whole nation to be a nation of priests who are called to spread this garden to the whole world. It's their job as a people to get the world back to God through that door. But here's the tension that builds in the Old Testament when you read it. The very people 
who are called to be a solution to the problem are also a big part of the problem. I mean, if you're trying to treat the world with AIDS, but you yourself have AIDS, <laughs> that's the problem with the people of God in the Old Testament. And they end up being no different than Adam. So by the end of the Old Testament, it's actually quite depressing because all is lost again. The garden is lost and Israel, like Adam and Eve, are exiled. But the Gospels, God still doesn't give up. And God once again replants his garden, but this time, rather than being a tent or rather than being a person, the garden is actually a person. It's it's Christ. It's a walking garden, the walking Shekinah glory and presence of God in the flesh. And Jesus is not just the garden of God, but he's also the perfect high priest. He's the one who, who stands in the gap on our behalf, who cleans us up, and he makes us presentable uh, to, a, to a holy God. He's the one that gets us back in. And the way he does it is through the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, which is himself. And because of that today, we can boldly, boldly come into the presence of a holy God. The door's open. In fact, we just take it for granted, but when Adam, was, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God put cherubim with swords to say it's a dangerous thing to come back into the garden of God. And then in the temple and in the tabernacle, on, on the curtain of the Holy of Holies, are these cherubim again, because that's where God is. And it's that idea that to, to, to get back into God, we have to pass through the sword. And here's the deal with Jesus. As our perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice, he fell on that sword. So that you and I can walk right into God. When we fell on that sword, remember what happened to the curtain in the temple? It was torn in two and God was saying to the world, come in, come into me. Then you get to the book of Acts. And then you add Pentecost to this story. And not only now do we get to go into God, but in Acts 2, God now comes into us. We are the Holy of Holies. In fact, if you uh, right now can... Wow, I forgot to even read our text, didn't I? Hey, that's a nice little introduction. Let's uh, turn to Acts chapter 6, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Just like you're at a Michigan-Notre Dame game, and, and Denard, or Devin Gardner's running for a touchdown, we stand right now, okay? With a sense of anticipation that the God of the universe is going to speak to us. Amen to that? Okay, I'm going to start with verse 7 of Acts chapter 6. I love this. So the word of God spread. Kingdom movement is word of God movement. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And listen to this. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Of course, opposition arose. However, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, where Saul, Paul of Tarsus is from. wonder if he was witness to what we're going to read right here. 
these men in the synagogue began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the Torah teachers, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This Stephen never stops speaking against the holy place. What's the holy place? The temple. And against the Torah. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy that place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw, I love this, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then Stephen gives a speech, an incredible one that you should read today. It culminates with him talking about the temple and what the true temple of God is. And look at chapter 7, verse 57, or 54. When they heard this, they were furious, they gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And you don't know now, right, probably right now what he just said, but that's his, he just sealed his death sentence. And it says then, while they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he cried out as he fell on his knees, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And he fell asleep. This is God's word. You can be seated. And that's a priestly text. I also want to just add to that text, 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to Jesus, the living stone, and that stone there is the stone, the temple. This temple rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That stone that Peter's talking about. It's God's house. It's the garden of God. It's heaven on earth. And as this text will say later, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation stone on which the whole temple is built. And later it will say he's the capstone. He's the stone that holds the whole thing together. But when you listen to verse 5 of, of 1 Peter 2, I mean, let your heart sing when you hear this. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. In other words, we are the very stones that make up the very house of God. And see, I get giddy when I read this text. Because listen to me. 
right now as we are joined to Christ with him, we are God's house. We're the garden. We're Eden. I don't know what this does to you. But it causes me to want to dance. We are the garden of God. The living God right now walks with us in the cool of the day. He dwells with us. He is here right now. Right now. So a question I like to ask you often. Who are you? What are you doing here? Do you know? Do you know who you are? Do you know your purpose on earth? I'll tell you right now if you don't know who you are. If you are in Christ, you are the garden of God, and your purpose in life is to be this garden to the world. Now I want us to think about that. I want to think about the world we live in because we live in a world that's chaotic. We, we live in a world that's dark. And we are called to be a taste of heaven to our chaotic, dark world. Who would say that about you right now? Rod, you're like heaven to me. Would your neighbors say that? Would the people you work with, would the people you live with say right now about you, wow, that person is, is like a paradise. Now here's another thing. The you in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, it's not the singular you. It's plural. It's you all. So in other words, we are not God's garden as individuals. We are God's garden as community. In fact, verse 5 of, of chapter 2 of 1 Peter says that we're God's people that are being built together. In fact, the way that we are being built into this garden, the way that we grow and are being built up, it's not on our own. There's this sense of togetherness. Which means something huge. You can't know God or grow in God unless you are in deep community with God's people. And see, I think so many of us have bought into this monastic idea that we're going to find God in some solitary, alone place. And while I'm not saying that you can't find God there, I want you to know God says, I dwell in you. Plural. It's when we're as a people, this is going to be the place where we're going to find God and we're going to grow in God. In fact, if you want to know why I love to take people to Israel, uh, the land really is just an excuse. It's a good excuse. But I really take them there so they can experience community at the deepest level. And it almost happens all the time with every person that goes. By the end of the trip, they come home with a new family. And even more than that, a deeper understanding of what home really means. And see, God's vision for his church was never for us to be just a bunch of individuals 
who all have their private lives and their private spirituality. His vision for us is that we would be a people who are being built up together. Now, I love this second Peter, or first Peter 2 chapter, um, verse 5, says not only are we the garden, but we're also the priests of this garden. Look at it. And then when you keep reading this, go down to verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Is that part of your identity today? That you are part of something huge. That you are part of the people of God. A chosen people. A people who are called out of darkness. Called into his light. And listen to this. As a people, we are a royal priesthood. You're not looking at one of the few priests in this room. I'm looking at all the priests. You guys are all priests. We're all priests, every single one of us. In fact, I love this in, in, in Acts chapter 6, the, the, the passage for today, when it says about Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 15. Look at it. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was shining like the face of an angel. What are they seeing? They're seeing someone who has been restored into the image of God like Adam and reflecting God back to the world. His face is shining like the sun. It's because he's a priest. And he is reflecting the face of God even, even to those who want to kill him. Now let's ask this question. Why do they want to kill Stephen so badly? The answer is simple. There's a battle going on. It's a battle of priests. It's a battle of temples. Who is Stephen standing before? Who is he standing before? Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin in that day was the Jewish Supreme Court. It was comprised of 71 men. 90% of this council, according to Josephus during this time, is comprised of priests. With a high priest as its leader. In fact, it resided in the temple, and I think I have a PowerPoint of that. Are we ready to go on that? I just discovered this this week, and it just, it blew me away based on what I know about the temple, but can you see it says the chamber of hewn stone with an arrow pointing to it? That's where this Jewish Supreme Court assembled, and I'll get to why I think that's so amazing. But what I want you to know is that it's this council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, that's responsible for the death of Jesus. They're the ones who killed Jesus from an earthly perspective. Now the question there is why did they want to kill him? And they want to kill him for the same reason they want to kill Stephen. And look at verses 12 and 13, chapter 6. It says they stirred up the people 
uh, the Torah teachers, they seized Stephen, they brought him before the Jewish Supreme Court, they produced these false witnesses. Sounds just like Jesus now, doesn't it? And here it is, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. The temple of which these priests and high priests are the guardians. So here's the question, why would Stephen be speaking against the temple? What do you think Stephen is saying about the temple? That would stir them up. I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying God no, live, no, no longer lives in that temple. In the most stunning building in the whole world at that time. And a huge money maker. And the thing that allows these priests to have status and, and live in luxury, Jesus made that temple obsolete. He put it out of business. He put the priesthood out of business. And here's what you, you and I need to know, is the temple and its priesthood was never intended to be an end. It's only pointing to a greater temple. It's only pointing to a greater priesthood. It's all pointing to Christ to the living God who would eventually tabernacle among us in the flesh. But I'll tell you, if you think it stops there, it doesn't. Because at Pentecost, this is pushed further. God not only changes his address from that building to Jesus, but then he, he moves it from Jesus to where? Where does God live right now? Us. I mean, seriously, you guys. Are you kidding me? I was at the Michigan-Notre Dame game last night. It's a nothing on the scale of the fact that God's dwelling is among us right now. We are the garden of God. And, and, and Steve, Stephen's whole defense to this court is, is summed up, I think, in chapter 7. Look at verse 48. This is where his whole case is going. He says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet said. Says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you actually going to build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? In other words, really? And while I dwell there, if you think that's the end, you've got to be kidding yourself. And here's what I find so interesting now about just discovering this this week. And those of you who went to Israel, uh, do you know where that is? You guys, that is exactly where the church is born, the southern stairs. And what I find interesting is I can't help but wonder how many priests were in their little chamber that, that that day when they just saw this massive fireball coming down and then spreading off into tongues and this, this violent ruach hachodesh, this, 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 this wind blowing and leaving that house and going into God's new house. Did they see it? Did it bother them? 
The text seems to think so. I'll tell you what. This has massive implications for our lives if we really know the significance of this. That God not only changed temples from that temple into us and priesthood from the priesthood in there to us being the priesthood. What that means for us today is that God is actually giving us the authority in this world to represent him. To put him on display for the world to see how great and awesome God is. God wants to show the world who he is through his priests. Us. In fact, everything that Jesus is to us as our great high priest, we are to be that to the world. And think about what Jesus is to us. First of all, he is the perfect image of God, perfectly showing us who God is. He is our advocate. He stands with us as our representative. He washes us. He cleanses us. He's the one who gets us back into the garden, back into God, by bearing our sins and interceding for us. That's what he does for us. We are to be that to the world. And let me just start with this first one, this first function of a priest. The priest is to put God on display. They bear God's image and they reflect God's glory into the world. And just think about Jesus, how he just so perfectly did that. He says, you see me and you see the Father. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the perfect image of God. He shows us the face of God perfectly. So if you want to know what God is like today, and you're wondering what his heart and his hands and his face and all that is, look at Jesus. In the same way, we should be able to say, not with cockiness, but with humility, world, if you want to know what God looks like, look at us. And I love this, Stephen, his face shines like the sun. He's a priest. Number two, as a continuation of this, one of the primary responsibilities of a priest was to care for the poor and the widow and the stranger. In fact, if you know the the biblical story, when Israel inherits the promised land, the priestly tribe of Levi, they weren't given any part of the land. Instead, God designated 48 cities for the priest to live. And what I hope you know this. This is important. The tithes of the land would be collected and stored in the gates of these Levitical cities. And it was the priest's job to distribute these resources to the poor, to the widow, and to the stranger. Because God said, I don't want there to be a poor person among you. So if this is a priestly function to care for the poor and the widow and the orphan... We ought to then get to Acts where God's switching his priesthood from there into us and see this happening. And guess what? We do. First of all, in Acts 2 verse 44, people sold everything they gave, had and gave to those who were in need. Acts 4.32 says, and there was not a single need among them. Could that be said about us right now? 
And then look at how chapter 6 even begins. The widows aren't being cared for properly, so the church rectifies that in a hurry. And they raise up these seven men, of which Stephen is a part, to care for the widow and the poor. Because this is what it means to be a holy priesthood. It's to take care of those in need. And I think that's, that's directly connected to verse 7 of chapter 6. Just read verse 7. See, I think those priests in the temple are seeing a people who live like priests, who have the heart of a priest, who care for the needy in such a priestly way where there's not a needy one among them. And, and so they actually are like, get me out of this greedy, corrupt priesthood in the temple and let me become the kind of priest that God always intended. I'm going to tell you, as a royal priesthood, this is our mission to the world. It's to care for the needs of the poor. It's to take care of the widow. It's to take care of the orphan. It's to take care of the refugee. This is what priests do. This is why I'm so excited when I hear about RIM. Because refugees right now are flooding into Grand Rapids. And RIM is a ministry that is welcoming them in and and bringing them in. That's priestly. And Crossroads has 40 people right now that have signed up to be a part of that. And just think about Jesus, who's our, who's our, our, our great example of, of what it means to priest in this way. I mean, just look at his life. Look at how he treated the poor and the widow and the stranger and the least of the least. And how he taught us that our lives are to be characterized by this quality. In fact, I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. I apply this to my life all the time. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You better believe I know it. That though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And as Jesus has been a priest to us, we are to be that to the world. We are to become poor to make others rich. And finally, a priest is someone who stands with the sinner. And it's more than just standing with the sinner, but it's standing with them as their representative, as their advocate, as the one who's going to bear their burden and intercede with them and on behalf of them. In fact, going back to those 48 cities that God designated to the priests, there were six of those 48 cities that were designated as what? Anybody know? The cities of refuge. Meaning, if you committed a a horrific crime, you could run to one of these cities and be safe. No one could harm you because you were, in essence, hidden in that city. You were safe. I mean, isn't this what Jesus is to us as our great high priest? He is our city of refuge, the one that we can just run to, run to. Even in all our dirt and our failures and our mistakes, we can run to him and we can be safe. In fact, there are so many stories in the gospel that just ooze this priestly quality of Jesus. Probably my favorite one is in John 8, where they throw this woman at Jesus' feet who's been caught in the act of adultery. And 
I don't know if you know this, but this story actually takes place right in the temple courts. Again, it's a competition of temples. What, what temple and what priesthood is, is, is really going to be what it's supposed to be? And, and so, of course, they throw this huge public trial. They expose all her sin. And then you have this mob of self-righteous men who stand there with stones in their hand ready to kill her. And Jesus, in one single statement, sends them all packing. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And one by one, it says, starting with the oldest, they dropped their stones and walked away. I mean, this is one of my favorite scenes in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. Because the scene opens literally with this mob of men literally just dropping their stones in the dirt. And as they leave, Jesus turns to this woman, this woman whose life has just been spared by Jesus. And there she is at Jesus' feet. And all you see is this hand that's just shakily coming to Jesus and being lifted up. That's why John said, I'm unworthy to untie this man's sandal. Jesus is her city of refuge. He stands with her as her advocate, as her defense. She's hidden in him. And it's not that Jesus just kind of makes light of her sin and says, you know what you did was really not that big of a deal. I mean, you got to be kidding me if you think that. Because he took that sin upon himself. He bore the consequences of that sin. He died for that sin. He took the stoning in her place. You know what? I'm that woman. You're that woman. Do you know that right now? We're all caught. We're all doomed to be stoned. And to the extent that you know that you're that woman, to that extent, you will love him. And see, the gospel is that Jesus is our advocate, that he stands with us and he stands for us against our accusers. And as Jesus is this to us, our city of refuge, our defense, our advocate, the one who stands with us, we are to be all of that to the world. Listen, where our world is living in sin right now, God's church is to be present in those places, not with stones in our hands, but with Jesus' guts and passion for the sinner. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world and to die for the world. And listen, he didn't condemn sin, he bore sin, and he lives to intercede on behalf of it. Remember Abraham, when God tells him, hey Abraham, you know what, this city, Sodom, has become so wicked, I'm going to destroy it. And what does Abraham do? He doesn't say, good God, it's about time. Rather, he goes into priest mode and he stands before God as a priest and as an advocate for wicked Sodom. He intercedes for them. He pleads with God to spare them. Please, God, don't do it. What about you? What about us? Do we just have stones in our hands? 
he who is without sin, let him or her cast the first stone. Who are you acting as a priest for right now? Who are you standing with right now as as an advocate? Who would say about you right now that that you are a city of refuge to me? I can just run into you and be safe. Are you a place? Because you know the grace of God where sinners can come in and be safe. Are we that place? You know, Jesus really pushed this. He says, I want you even to do this for your enemies, those who curse you. Jesus says, I want you to pray for them. I want you to intercede on behalf of them. I want you to bless them. Just imagine right now if if Christians would actually just drop the stones that are in, in our hands and that we would stop condemning the world and instead that we would literally stand with the world and we would stand with sinners as their advocate, priesting. Look at Stephen. Look at the end of chapter 7. These men who are dragging him out of the city. Verse 57, 58. 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's what he prays. Who else prayed that? His great high priest. When he's the perfect sacrifice for the world, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is priesting on behalf of of even his enemies. And here is Stephen in the same way as a priest under the high priest Jesus, priesting on behalf of his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In fact, I love that. He literally falls, he falls to his knees in a priestly posture. God, please, don't hold this against them. Please, Lord. Can you pray that prayer? Can you? Do you? Even for those who have mistreated you and who have wronged you, who have hurt you. I look at this and I ask myself, how can Stephen pray this? Well, look at the verse right before it. Verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, it starts there, doesn't it? And then he looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Peter sees heaven open. And this is exactly what priests do. They, they, they open the door of heaven. They get people in. They, they, they get the gate to the garden. And, and now all of a sudden this garden sees and sees. It's open to me. He sees it. And what else does he see? He sees his high priest. 
and see in the Bible, whenever Jesus, it talks about Jesus at the right hand of God, it's always Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, but not this time. This is the one time in the Bible where it says Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. And why is Jesus standing and not sitting? Because as this supreme human court is condemning him, the only court that matters in the world is applauding him and standing with him and commending him. And I'm going to tell you something. When you and I have our own personal experience of being spared by the only court that matters and the only high priest that matters, Jesus, when we see him standing with us and defending us and advocating on our behalf with this airtight case, it's airtight. Because the case he's making on our behalf, he's not just up there begging for mercy. Please, God, would you just forgive them again? He's actually demanding for justice. He says to the father, do you see that sin? Do you see that adultery? Do you see that gossip? Do you see that jealousy? I paid for it with my blood. And here's the deal, if you and I see Stephen standing with us, all the verdicts, all the judgments, all the people that are critiquing you and criticizing you and all of that, it doesn't matter because there's only one verdict that matters. Listen to Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he also not along with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring any charge against whom God has chosen? Who? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Tell me, says Paul. Who can condemn us? Who can critique us? He says, no one. Christ Jesus who died and was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. That's why Paul is left with one sarcastic question almost coming out of this. If God is for us to this extent that he did not even spare his own son but gave him up, you just ask yourself, who can really condemn you? The God of the universe isn't bringing any charge against you, then you tell me who really can And see, like that city of refuge, we are in him. We are literally hidden in him where his righteousness now becomes our righteousness and his performance becomes our performance. And this is why the Bible talks all the time about the freedom we have in Christ because we're free in him. We're free of all people's opinions. We're free of all performing. We're free from all guilt and shame. We're even free from ourselves and what our own self says about ourselves. We're free from this need to please people. We're even free to fail, even all the time. Because it's not about us and our righteousness. It's all about his righteousness. And we are hidden in that. And what a Christian is, is someone who sees heaven open. And we see our great high priest standing at God's right hand interceding for us, advocating for us, dying for us, believing in us. So in light of all that, can I end with this? Who are you doing that for right now? On whose behalf are you standing? Please, I hope people are coming to your mind right now, specific people. Who are you burdened for right now? 
Which of the, of the accusers in your life right now do you need to start praying for? Who in your life right now do you need to forgive and say, God, would you forgive them? We are people chosen by God, belonging to him to be a royal priesthood. Let's pray. Such a massive calling, God. And something we could never do because we're so good or because we're so gifted or have the ability. We're bankrupt. We can only do this because you're so good and because we're hidden in you. And we see all that you are to us and all that you have done for us through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that that would burn in this heart, the heart of this family, this community, and that we would be God's people in God's place who enjoy God and who priest God and bring the garden of God to our world for the glory of Christ. Amen. Just come down, would you? We're going to take an offering. Don't let the offering get in the way of responding to God's word this morning.